0: The Filmmaker Toolkit Podcast is sponsored this week by Barry. For your Emmy consideration, HBO presents Barry. Nominated for 14 Emmys, including Outstanding Comedy Series and Outstanding Lead Actor in a Comedy Series for Bill Hader, who was on this very podcast. You can go uh, listen to the episode that we did with Bill a while ago. Uh, I think it's great. Don't miss what critics call a masterclass. Barry is now streaming on HBO Max. Hi y'all, welcome to the Filmmaker Toolkit Podcast. My name is Sarah Shackett, I'm the Associate Craft Editor over at IndieWire. And today we have a wonderful conversation with Jamie Babbitt, who is one of the executive producers and director of the first three episodes of the new A League of Their Own series, which is now streaming on Amazon. Uh, Jamie came to talk about how her long career in comedy, uh, from directing But I'm a Cheerleader, to Gilmore Girls, to The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, lots of things you've seen and loved uh, laid the groundwork for how she approached this reboot of the beloved Penny Marshall classic, Um, and also the ways that she tried to honor the real women who played in the All-American Girls Professional Baseball League in the 40s, and their stories many of which weren't in the 1992 film because they're queer stories. But, oh golly, is the show queer, and it is so much better for it. So, please enjoy this conversation with Jamie Babbitt. I'm curious to to start, you know, you've done a lot of different comedy series from A League of Their Own, Silicon Valley, Girls, Only Murders... And I'm curious what kind of conversations you like to have with creators and and with your department heads to get a sense of the vibe of the show, of of kind of the
1: goals that you're trying to hit. The first thing I always do is read the script. That's the Bible, right? So basically I read the script and then decide based on the script if I'm even interested in directing it. Because I feel like Mm -hmm. if you're saying that you want to direct something, that's usually two years of your life. And you have to really invest your life, your heart, and your soul, and your artistic energy for a couple of years into something. so when you initially read it for the first time and feel the cinematic journey while you're reading it, you have to see it in your head and there's so many great scripts that I read that when I read it, I just don't see the journey in my head i don't I don't know how to visualize it, and then there's certain things that I read. And it's just so obvious to me how I would do it. And that was certainly the case with this script. I actually got sent A League of Their Own, the pilot, while I was in P-Town. And I was vacationing with my gay family. So two daughters, gay <laughs> baby daddy, ex-wife, current partner. And I read the script and I just, I just saw it in my head. And I was like, I have to direct. Like, no one else is directing this. I am... I literally could not be more perfect to direct this. So I had my interview with Abby and Will, and uh, I just talked about my passion for the script and why I thought it was really special. And as a queer person who had seen the original League of Their Own and really loved it, I felt the void of queer stories when I watched the movie. And there was a certain kind of void that existed in 2000, which is why I made But I'm a Cheerleader, my first attempt at filling the void so that there would be more lesbians in film and TV. And Mm -hmm. to see League of Their Own be reimagined and actually tell the real stories of these women, that was really exciting to me. And so I, I basically had my first interview and I talked a lot about how I saw it and, you know, it had to be really funny, but it was had to be emotional and I wanted it to be really cinematic and I wanted it to be romantic. And to be honest, a, a lot of the same things in But i Mature Leader are similar, like it's funny, but it also has heart. Basically, I had two more interviews after that with different people, someone from Amazon, then a second interview with Will and Abby where they were like callback interviews or whatever. And I ended up getting the job. And one of the things I said at my last meeting with them is the first thing I want to do is meet these women, because I know they exist. And they were actually having a convention of all the living members in Cooperstown, New York that weekend. And I said, I want to fly immediately from this interview to Cooperstown and meet the women who are all in their nineties. And it was such a great way to start the whole process was hanging out with Mabel and her cast of friends and a lot of queer players and hearing their stories. And, you know, at that time they were out, to other gay people, but not really out to other players. And just hearing what, what fun the league was and how none of that had ever been talked about. Like all the queer joy that they found in being these small town girls who finally got to be together and all the romances and heartbreak and fans and getting paid a lot of money at that time to play professional baseball. I mean, they got to be professional athletes, which was incredible. And live in this kind of all-female society, especially because most of the men were gone fighting in the war at this time. So, yeah, it just was a really special time in history. And I was just even more excited about directing the pilot once I met the women and saw how vibrant and amazing they were. I was like, yeah, we have to tell this story and all of the joy that goes with it.
0: Yeah, there's like a profound relief when you get to the first makeout scene in the pilot, it's like, oh, good, this is part of it. Yes, this is why we're remaking it. Excellent. <laughs> I'm curious to, to to dig in a little bit. to You're right that it's been all female society, and they ha- in in the show they have this house, and everyone has a different roommate, and there are all these sort of halls and twisting alleyways, and and the garage out back and stuff. And so I'm curious how you. Think about what makes what makes a show cinematic. what What are you What are you thinking about in trying to like, maximize the both the, the queer joy and the intrigue and the drama and kind of the the earnest heartache that's going on uh, with all of the Rockford Peaches.
1: I had been lucky enough to work on marvelous Mrs. Maisel, and I had worked with Amy Sherman Palladino for eighteen episodes of Gilmore Girls back in the day. I really would dream about one That's really the style that Amy loves. And mm-hmm. so I'd gotten really proficient at doing one which I think are really cinematic. And also working on Maisel and being able to really do a period show in the 50s. This was in the 40s. But I had learned a lot of things about directing a period show, like how much visual effects are involved, how the grittiness of New York mixed with the period cars and the costumes is what makes Maisel look so good. Because usually when you have a period, anything they shoot on a back lot and it looks too clean and it looks fake and it doesn't have the grittiness that a real city has. And so when I first read the pilot, I was like, I know how to make this look as good as Maisel. Like we have to fight to shoot, not on a back lot, but in a real city get those cars, Mm -hmm. do the VFX to wipe out 2020 in a modern city and get the extras, get the clothes. That is cinema. So I was super excited to do that, which is like the first five minutes of the pilot. You see what I did with that. I also just the same stuff that everyone knows is cinematic, which is like slow motion and big visual scenes, which was the baseball, frankly. There's a lot of like fun cinema and the baseball stuff. So I studied a lot of sports movies to see, you know, how do you make sports movies fun? What is your answer to that? I'm so curious. Well, How do you make sports movies fun? Well, I think because I'm not a sport, my brothers like laugh at me because they're like, I can't believe you directed a sports movie. You literally know nothing about (laughs) sports, but- I think the positive part of that is that I don't know sports, but I definitely know cinema. So we had a really great baseball advisor who's like the only female coach of Major League Baseball at one point. She was like the first female coach, Justine Siegel. And she was next to me at all times. And so she would show me a baseball play and I'd go, "Uh, it's just kind of boring. Like, is there something more exciting? So I really pushed her to keep showing me Cool shit because I mean Penny was like the biggest fan of baseball. And she also had the girls doing the splits and there's a lot of fun stuff in the original movie because she also knows cinema and she wanted to make baseball visual. I knew I wanted some slow mo sequences. I knew I wanted it's fun things like the splits and people doing jump balls and all that. Like six frames per second freeze frames of people like in the air. Yeah, just Lenny Riefenstahl, <laughs> sports Olympic, the glory of moments. the human body. Yeah. yeah, no, seriously though, it's like a very cinematic world. So that was very fun. It's not just a bunch of close ups of people in an apartment. So there were a lot of fun challenges. There was the period thing. There was. A lot of cinema and the sports stuff. There was really beautiful locations, like being able to shoot Chicago in the nineteen forties in Wrigley Field. That was certainly a challenge. Shooting at those like grand old hotels. And and a lot of honestly, group scenes. The challenge I think of directing that show is that you have fifteen actors in every scene. So How do you cover the scenes in a way that feels energetic and fun and also doesn't take forever because you're not... I didn't do close-ups of everybody. I had moving masters, which is something I had done for years on Maisel and Gilmore. So I was able to... The bathroom scene, for example, in the pilot was one shot and there's like 15 girls in that scene, so... Would you mind, just for anyone who might not know what a moving master is? A moving master is basically shooting a scene without cutting the camera so you basically have one shot per scene so the bathroom scene specifically it starts on two girls sitting on sinks in the mirror and then an actor crosses the camera and leads you to another actor and she has a line and then that actor moves to another actor and then they say the line and then another actor takes you to another actor and they say a line and you never cut the camera it's just all one shot
0: Intensely, intensely choreographed one shot.
1: Yeah, so it feels like you're seeing everybody talk, and you feel like you got a close up of everybody, but you didn't. It was actually one camera with just some like cool choreography, basically.
0: That's interesting because I was going to ask whether you tend to, especially for for a comedy, I imagine there might be an impulse to try and shoot a lot of coverage and try and get like the best version, especially if folks are improving. But it seems like you took an, and tend to take a more sculpted approach.
1: At this point in my career, I know how to do some stuff cinematically, so it's fun to show off a little. Oh, for sure. (laughs) Respect for that. (laughs) And and also, by the way, a lot of times I didn't have time. So, like, for example, that bathroom scene, I had two hours Mm -hmm. to shoot the whole thing. And lighting one shot takes an hour, so I basically would have gotten two shots. And I just didn't have time. So I was like, okay, I know how to get out of this hole. I'll just make it all one shot, and it'll be faster, and it'll actually be a lot more elegant it's not only time saving, but it also just is a little more visual flair, which is fun. I was gonna ask you, I'm always so curious because TV is usually so
0: insane, kind of what what the time constraints were and what were were some of the the sort of hard lines that you had to respect and then find creative solutions to sort of get things done on time to to make shots be lively and cinematic and and still still get everybody home on time.
1: I had a pretty good schedule and a pretty good budget, I have to say, so thanks to Amazon. And I was able to pretty much shoot things the way that I wanted to, which part of the style of the show was shooting these like cinematic wonders. So for example, in the dance sequence, that had been such a great sequence in the original movie. So I definitely wanted dancers and to have dancing at the bar. I mean, that Madonna scene in the mm-hmm. original is so great. So I was like, I'm not going to have Madonna, but I have a great song. Um, I have all my characters and I want to do one shot that goes from actor to actor to actor to actor that shows off who they are as a character dancing so that was a really fun thing to choreograph and to do also one shot and that also got people home in time because it was only one shot i mean we had to do it you know 15 (laughs) times or something but once again i had practiced all that kind of choreography on Maisel and on Gilmore, all those years. I knew it was time efficient, even though it would take some time to get it right. But I also think, in order to do a shot that's just one shot for a whole sequence, you have to have a team of actors that are excellent. Because the thing about shooting a lot of close ups is you can edit something together. And if someone is a terrible actor, you can just cut around them, you can hide it. Yeah. So you can really only do those one shot per scene thing if your whole team is excellent, because you can't hide if someone's bad. So it's super fun, but I also had an excellent ensemble of actors. I truly, we were doing casting for months and we really, initially we were looking for specific types that match the script. And then at a certain point, I said to Abby and Will, forget about the script. We've seen so many excellent people come in here who aren't necessarily right for the part that's in the script. But what about we have these excellent people? What if we act, we, and that we love and we know are some of the funniest people around? What if we tailored the script, changed the script to make it perfect for these actors? And that's basically what we did that that was also inspired I mean when you watch the original she had Rosie O'Donnell she had Madonna she had Lori Petty she had Gina Davis like there were all these excellent actors and Abby had written and and Abby and Will had envisioned these different types but what we found in the real world was a little bit different than what they had written and was so much richer and more interesting what we actually found and I said let's just cast the 10 best comedy people that came in here who are all super different because we know we needed diversity of look so everyone didn't look the same. Um, And actually at one point I like, the producer and, and the writers were making fun of me because I said, guys, we have to stop casting brunettes because we kept casting brunettes. <laughs> and so then we started getting into wigs because I was like, okay, Darcy Cardin is a brunette. Abby Jacobson is a brunette. Kate Berland is a brunette. And so we started the girl who's, who looks like Marilyn Monroe in the show. She is a brunette in real life, but we made her a blonde because we were like, we need yeah. to tell all these girls apart. And I was like, I think... Darcy would look really cool as a redhead. So yeah, we we had to we definitely had to diversify their looks once we figured out who the kind of team of players was going to be.
0: That's awesome. That's so funny. I I assumed that that there's I, it it's reminiscent of the Madonna look in the original film, and there are like touches in the show to the original. And I just had assumed that that was, that was that, but it was to, to differentiate everybody visually, that makes a ton of sense, especially in scenes where, as you say, there are all 15 of them and they're all there. I wanted to, to circle back to working in the period for a second and whether your approach changes at all in terms of they're just different. People are still people, but there are different social mores and and different ways of expressing yourself and and whether you shift your approach to directing actors at all, depending
1: on what the environment that they're in is. That's an interesting question. Um, I think in this case, what I loved about the script, and I do always go back to the script, is that Abby had written something that had contemporary language that took place in the 40s. So she didn't attempt to use 40s language, like they talk about someone's dick size and they use- And hanging out, even something as easy as that. Yeah, there was a lot of language that was more Broad City than 1940s 20-something language that would make the show technically more accurate, but not feel as contemporary Where Mm -hmm. our main goal, and it was the goal of the script, was to bring a modern audience into their world and how exciting and cool it was that they all got to be together in this very oppressive time of the 40s. That they found each other, that they got paid to do what they loved, that they got to live together and all date each other. Like, it was amazing. It was summer camp. And they got paid. And we wanted to make the show really accessible for the modern time. So in the same way, when you watch League of Their Own, the Penny Marshall version, their hairstyles are very 90s, less 40s, they're more 90s. Um, Mm -hmm. We wanted to have the language be more accessible, a little more broad city than, you know, a, a typical 40s comedy. And so to me, what I kept saying to the actors is really make it as specific to you as possible and to your character. So don't go into the kind of affect of 40s dialect. So just trying to keep them all in the same tone, which is this kind of fun, broad city-ish, 1940s, joyful comedy show. (laughs) I did have to direct them, like you said, in their environment, which to be honest, most of them are stand-up comedians, not athletes. (laughs) So that was the most challenging thing because not only do I know very little about baseball, but a lot of these people are incredible actors and very funny, but they really don't know how to hit or run or they are not professional baseball players. So I had to enlist the help of great baseball player, women, who should be playing professional baseball, if there were a league, they would be playing. But because of Justine, because I had the best baseball coach around, who knows every single amazing female baseball player in the US and abroad, frankly, she has a great network. And we were able to get a lot of those women to be extras in the show and to be body doubles. So they threw for Shantae, for example, she plays Max. She's a yeah. super talented actor, but she comes from a dance cheerleading background. So when she ran, she looked more like a dancer or a cheerleader than a professional baseball player. So we had to really work with her on... She's had so many years of training in dance and cheerleading... So trying to retrain her body to not move that way and move in a different way. That that was the biggest challenge for all the actors. It wasn't just Shante; it was everybody. They're all theater kids, and they all had to be like stud athletes. So that was challenging. I mean, some of them were were actually excellent, but um, but most were just average actor types.
0: Yeah, and had to do a little bit of baseball
1: camp. I would imagine a baseball camp, VFX, and doubles.
0: I'm curious, sort of as as a non sports person coming out of this process, is what did you find was the most exciting part of doing the sports sequences? Is it like trying to telegraph movement? Is it kind of ratcheting up the tension of the games? Is it sort of the 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 rhythm of the response between the the players as they're trying to like problem solve around the glorious dick bag that Nick Offerman is in the show I'm 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 curious kind of what spoke to you as you started working through those sequences
1: I mean I felt like for all the baseball sequences there needed to be some kind of story so there was always a story so for example in the pilot Carson and Greta they're they're auditioning they're trying out for <laughs> and see you can see I'm a theater kid not a sports kid they're trying out for the league and what is the story? Okay, The story is they just met, they have a sparkle to each other, but they don't know each other. So what's the journey of them playing baseball? How does that cement their friendship? How does what's the tension? I love the I love the scene where Abby pretends that she's not good. And she's really nervous. And Greta says to her, you just need to focus on yourself and don't worry about other people. Like, you can do it. And she's like, okay, and pretends like she's really nervous. And then she, like, kills it. And she's, like, a total stud. So it's just, like, fun, playful storytelling within the sports. Um, And that's my favorite kind of storytelling and movie making anyway, is doing things not through dialogue, but through what the action, whether it's um, just nonverbal things that people do to speak to each other, that's the best thing that cinema can tell. And if I think about all my favorite moments in cinema throughout time, it's always quiet moments. It's not lines for me. It's always silent moments where cinematic things are happening and there's no dialogue. So that's the great thing about a sports movie. Um, And I think movies like The Natural... Movies like Bull Durham, movies like Field of Dreams. And I loved all those movies. And once again, not a sports person, but they had great story. I, I'm curious if there are any
0: besides kind of the, the logistical, tactical things that you had to take on for the show, if there are any kind of storytelling lessons that you took from League of Their Own that you would bring into other work that you do.
1: One thing I really liked about directing the pilot is there was so much gold in the comedy banter of this like A-list group of comedians that we put together. Mm -hmm. So basically giving those actor comedians a chance to make takes their own. So we would always do the beginning takes where it was just a script to make sure that we had the story beats that we needed. But then for example, when um, Darcy and Abby's character get drunk, all the fun improv stuff that they did um, was so great. And that was just like, okay, try this, try that, try this, try that. Cause I just feel like it's, you just get so much good stuff when you, the character's, get so flushed out when the actors make it their own. They, they, they put all the script inside their bodies. And then you let these thoroughbreds, actors, comedians do their thing. And so many of the funniest things in the pilot are moments that the actors found, like Kate Berlant, all her kind of rambling as the roommate. That's all her stuff Mm -hmm. that she put in there. And um, all that stuff about the blonde girl saying, who's your type? And Joe being like, I like blondes. Like, that's all improv. Um, All the stuff when they're drunk. Like, there's a lot of improv in there. And um, there's certainly a lot of improv that didn't make the final cut. But I do think, as a director, I'm so prepared. And I am... Will, the writer, called me like a a tank when we're on set because I'm just like, get the shots, get the (laughs) shots, get the shots, get the shots. Like I'm like a a robot for making sure we get everything we need. But when you have the time, you have the organization, you have the structure, but when you have the time to really let actors explore, you just get gold. Do you feel the need to sort of like do anything?
0: Is is it just about finding the right framing, composition, perspective to let them explore. Do you feel the need to like be doing anything with the camera so that the camera
1: is kind of rising to that level of improv too? You know, I see in my head how the camera is going to move in scenes. So I prefer to have the choreography of the camera, what I see in my head and the actors to fold into that cinematic landscape. Um, So I'm not really the type of director that figures out the shots on set. I I almost always know exactly what I'm going to do. And I I do let myself be open to inspiration in the moment. But to be honest, I tend to like my ideas. (laughs) So I just do my ideas. (laughs) That's very fair. This is, this is a, an unfairly broad
0: question, but, but very quickly, at the end, uh, are there considerations that you have when shooting a pilot that's different from coming onto a series a little bit later in the process? Are you thinking about what you're going to hand off in terms of the show's visual style to other directors who are going to come on after you, or are you just really
1: focused on the, the script and the story? I think there's a lot more pressure when you're doing the pilot because I read the script and I really liked it, but if I fucked it up, then it would be bad and no one would watch it. (laughs) And it won't get picked up because also they look at your pilot and if the pilot's bad, they don't give you the money to make the rest of the show. So I did feel pressure, self-inflicted, to make the pilot excellent so that we would get the money to tell the story of all these queer women who never got their stories told. And these are all the people who have made my life better because they were fighting and trailblazing way before I was ever born. And so I I felt a lot of pressure and I wanted to do a great job because I care a lot about the queer canon and care a lot about Especially this generation of women who never really get their stories told. And my grandmother's sister is one of them. My great aunt is a lesbian and this age. So I really wanted to get it right. So basically, I just wanted it to be great. And I used my own cinematic style to try to make it great. And then other directors come in and do their thing as well. So I certainly have directed a lot of shows, like girls. Lena directed her own pilot. And when I came into it years later, the show was already a huge success. And I certainly took on a lot of the visual style that Lena had set up, which was so perfect for her writing. But then inevitably, when you're directing something, even when you're a guest director and it's, you're not doing the pilot, you absolutely bring your own thing to it. It's just impossible not to. So I do think I, I, I can only yeah. be myself. One of the early directors that I worked for was Martin Scorsese, and he said, Sometimes style is just your own foibles and your own habits as a director. People start saying that's your style. Um, and it's just, oh, Jamie likes to use the dahli, Oh, Jamie likes to do Wonders. Oh, Jamie likes this kind of rhythm. Jamie, if you look at everything I've ever done, I'm sure there's a lot of things that come back. And I think that's true for all directors and writers. And it's just making art. But mostly I just wanted to do a good job. And then when I directed the later episodes, I wanted to do the same thing. And the truth is, is that what I knew that the show needed was I knew it needed the spirit of the women. And the women were joyful. The women were fun. And the women loved baseball. They were in their 90s. And they still, when they talked about baseball, they talked about it like it was crack cocaine. It was just their absolute joy. So anyway, it was a pleasure. And, uh, I think also because when I originally read the script and it had a kind of modern feel to the language, I knew there was going to be some kind of modern play with the music. Um, and so in the post-production process, we worked with a lot of different music to see, were we going to use period music? Were we going to use modern songs? Were we going to use score? So there was a lot of incarnations of the music. Yeah, it's a really lovely mix. Yeah, and, and it was, you know, it was basically, we first we put in all period music and then we put in modern music and we just got excited about different tracks for different things and then realized, you know what, mm-hmm. we can just put it all together because that's sort of the way the script was and it was pretty cool. So I was like, you know, I think people will accept... Basically, if it's joyful and fun and has heart and emotion and you get sucked into the story, I think we have the latitude to play with a lot of different time zones of music.
0: Yeah, because it's ultimately just a route into the emotion, which I mean, part of the joy and, and the one of the really cool things about the show is proving that, yeah, hey, this is timeless. This was going on in the 40s. It's going on now. It doesn't matter. Yeah, it's just what it is. Yeah, exactly.
1: So that was one of the fun things about using all different kinds of music. And and also talking about the very modern concept of you can talk about being gay. This doesn't have to be this big shameful secret. So that's a very modern gaze on something that even some of the players that I talked to had never, even though they were telling me about some of their queer stories still had never come out to their families. I mean, in their nineties, it was very, very cool to be a part of this project. I felt very, very lucky. Tiny
0: post question. Where do you stand on, on temping? On how, do you rely on it? Do you think it's stupid? I'm just, I'm always curious where where directors
1: are on that. I really don't like to use temp music score for editing. Because I find that you get mm-hmm. attached to a score for, from another film and then your poor composer is just always trying to mimic that and doesn't really have a chance to come at it in an original way. But the truth about the way we did the music on this is we never used temp music, we, we used songs. So there was just a ton of songs always, all different kinds of songs. Jamie,
0: thank you so much for, for chatting. It's been an absolute pleasure.
1: Thank you so much. You had excellent questions, and it's exciting to talk about filmmaking. So thank you for making the time to talk to me. Oh gosh, of course. And and congrats on the the
0: show. It's it is a delight. Just an absolute delight. Yay. Thank you so much. The Filmmaker Toolkit Podcast was also sponsored this week by last week tonight. For your Emmy consideration, HBO presents Last Week Tonight with John Oliver, nominated for five Emmys, including Outstanding Variety Talk Series and Outstanding Writing for a Variety Series. Don't miss what critics call a must-see show. Last Week Tonight with John Oliver is now streaming on HBO Max.